Hello, fellow fiends. Welcome to another episode of Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I am your host, Cassiopeia. Don't forget that you can find me every Friday with brand new episodes. And if you subscribe to the Patreon or the Anchor webpage, which you can actually do for as low as $5 a month, you get bonus episodes every other Tuesday. You get a merchandise discount that is good on anything in the merchandise store that goes um, for the Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces merchandise, the Wiccan Fake Candles, um, the Magical World of Cassiopeia items as well. Um, You get all the appreciation I can possibly send you. And depending on which tier you sign up for, you get a box of welcome thank you swag. And each tier does get it. It just depends on what uh, tier you sign up for as to what you get in that thank you box. Um, If you are looking to support without subscribing. I have a cash app and a Venmo. And you can also um, just supporting by liking, sharing, commenting, tagging your friends, following on social media, um, sharing when I post new episodes, sharing just the content. I mean, things that you do on a daily basis. Uh, Just it also helps the podcast get seen. It helps with the algorithm. It helps with, you know, just all that fun stuff. Uh, purchasing merchandise and candles also helps support the podcast. And if you are a fellow business owner or content creator, and you're looking for a way to spread the word on your awesome items, uh, send me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com because I do have ad space available coming up on the podcast. Uh, So now that that is out of the way, Um, I know that I've said it before, but one of my dreams has always been to travel. And I'm sure that's like a lot of people's dreams. Like I see all the time on social media, how, oh, I'd love, if I could, I would drop everything and travel. If I could, I'd go here, I'd go there. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's a great dream to have. Um, but, uh, I feel my destinations are a little different than most. Um, I love historical areas. I love spooky areas, you know, uh, the haunted places, cemeteries. Uh, people think I'm crazy because I think everywhere that I have visited recently is where's the nearest cemetery. Um, I usually go to the places that people tend to avoid. Um, And I've actually even made a list of the most haunted places in each state. Uh, So if I'm ever in that area that they're in in this state, I'm going. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've visited, actually I have visited a couple that were in the actual state. So checking off that bucket list. Um, Now, I started this podcast as a way to learn about and also share my love of the paranormal and the unexplainable encounters that people have. Um, The spooky space that I have for you today is actually... um, it's on my list. It's been on my list for a while. And it has one of the longest list of ghosts that I've probably seen um, so far um, in my three-year, two-year journey, two-year journey, sorry. Um, But uh, I had a lot of fun. Uh, That's a weird, I guess, way to say that. Um, I had a lot of fun actually researching this one because of all of the information of all the history that surrounds it and a lot of um, 
not even just spooky facts, but historical facts in the way that things kind of came about. Um, the asylum actually dates back to the 1850s, and it was supposed to be a place for peace and restoration, but it actually spiraled into madness and mayhem. So join me now, grab those teas, coffees, wine, beers, pick your poison, and let me tell you about the spooky space of the Trans-Eleni Lunatic, Lunatic Asylum. insanity. And I mean, of course, it was before most people in the country had any kind of real resources that could really start to study the mind in depth. Now, most people who were considered mentally ill were considered to be witches or possessed by the devil. Now, the treatment of those was basically barbaric, and most ended up in prisons with dangerous criminals, often chained to walls, um, unclothed, and covered in filth. Now, they began to separate those who were actually ill from the criminal prisoners during the 1770s, um, not so much to treat them and rehabilitate them, but they were they basically felt like they were just protecting society. And I, I feel like some, you know, I just don't understand why people think that they're protecting society by hurting other people. Now, Dorothea Dix was a teacher, a nurse, and a social reformer, and she was actually a major catalyst in improving the treatment of ill patients. Um, she was born in Maine in 1802, and she actually had a very abusive alcoholic father and a mentally unstable mother, and she took it upon herself to actually kind of grow up a little faster than she should and raise her two younger brothers. Now, she didn't actually have a formal education, but she was quite gifted and even opened a private school at the age of just 15 in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she taught young women. And just five years later, she opened a second school where she did the same. Now, in 1841, Dorothea visited a jail in Cambridge where she encountered mentally ill patients chained naked to the cell without heat or ventilation. And this, this kind of horrified her, and it inspired her to change the way that patients were treated. Now, she began gaining attention when she exposed different hospitals, and the Massachusetts state legislator actually offered to fund her cause, and she traveled all over the United States, Europe, and Asia to help better hospitals in their practices, and they even opened a hospital in New Jersey in her honor in 1848. 
Now, unfortunately, this kind of work and the things that she encountered in her travels caused Dorothea herself to have a mental breakdown, and she checked herself into that very hospital. Now, they ended up giving her a private apartment where she spent the last six years of her life before passing away in 1887. Now, the construction of the Trans-Alegni Lunatic Asylum was authorized in the early 1850s by the Virginia General Assembly. Now, the Virginia General Assembly was established in 1619 and is the legislative body of the Commonwealth of Virginia, and it's actually the longest-running continuous lawmaking body in the Western Hemisphere. The idea of the asylum was consulted by Thomas Story Kirkbride, a physician who was a superintendent for the Institute of the Pennsylvania Hospital and the primary founder of the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutes for the Insane. Say that five times fast or one time slow. <laughs> So, like Dorothea, he had a theory for better treatment. Um, the two actually became friends and ended up working alongside each other in this journey to help um, get better care and have those patients taken care of better. Now, the Trans-Alegni Asylum was designed by Gothic Revival and Tudor Revival Baltimore architect Richard Snowden Andrews and construction began in 1858. Now, at first, it seems foreboding and ominous, but it followed Kirkbride's plan that included long rambling wings in a staggered formation, and in the early days, it provided therapeutic light, fresh air, and allowed nature to, like, just to enter the building. It had lots of sun, open spaces for the patients to eat and socialize, and they were offered privacy, comfort, and dignity, while nothing would suggest that they were in a hospital surrounded by gates. With art therapy and live performances, patients who stayed there actually spoke fondly of their time, and even the holidays were good times. Now, work was originally done by prison laborers until skilled stone masons were brought over from Germany and Ireland, and the hospital is actually the largest hand hand-cut stone masonry building in North America and second in the world. Now, in 1861, construction was put on hold when the American Civil War began. Then the completed wing that um, was already built and the grounds were used as a barracks for soldiers and construction, construction picked up in back up in 1862. Now, in 1863, when West Virginia was admitted as a U.S. state, the hospital was renamed the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. Fitting, I guess. Patients were first admitted in October of 1864, while construction continued until 1881. 
There's a 200-foot clock tower, which was completed in 1871. The center unit is four stories high, and it used um, it was used to house uh, offices for personnel, and it actually had a large ballroom. Rooms for people of color were completed in 1873. Now, the hospital was designed to be self-sufficient, so it was complete with a farm for fresh fruits and vegetables, a dairy herd, waterworks, and an ice plant. And there's actually a cemetery on the grounds as well, and the grounds actually total 666 acres. If you are anyone who believes in that, I'm sure that number is, I'm sure that number has a different meaning for a lot of people. Um, and it's actually even the clothing, curtains, and fabrics were made on site. At this time, asylums were basically just dumping grounds for societies unwanted. People were admitted for multiple reasons, not even related to mental health. I mean, you could be put in the hospital for asthma, for laziness, um, egotism, which I feel we should be able to put some people still to this day for egotism because um, um, <laughs> you could put people in the asylum for domestic troubles, and even greediness. And the asylum actually offered money to anyone who dropped off a patient, even if they had no signs of mental illness at first. Now, this led to an overwhelming number of patients being admitted, and it led to a shortage of staff and beds. Now, it was only built to house 250 patients, and by 1880, there were 717. Now, in 1902, the grounds had a gas well drilled, and in 1913, the name was changed to Weston State Hospital, and by 1938, the total of patients reached 100, or no, I'm sorry, 1,661. By 1949, it was to over 1,800, and a survey done by the Medical Association said that it looked like a hog pen and smelled even worse. In the 1950s, it hit 2,600 patients, and they had multiple people in rooms that were, and these rooms were only made for one person. And they actually begin bed sharing, which um, this is where they would have patients on eight hour shifts, like sleeping in the bed, and then they would change over to another patient. And I highly doubt they were changing the sheets in between. And that's just gross. Now, clearly, the hospital was less than desirable. It housed everyone from epileptics to alcoholics, drug addicts, um, and non-educable mental defectives, as they were called. Now, on a um, inspection of the hospital, they found poor sanitation, insufficient furniture, insufficient lighting, no heating, and one wing was actually rebuilt after a patient set, set it on fire, which um, was actually one of many in 1935. In 1960, a morgue was built. 
Now, lack of proper care and sanitation led to a large number of deaths, and no one knows exactly how many people died there for sure, but research is being done to actually find this out. And historian uh, Titus Swan estimates the number to be at a five-figure range. Um, Treatment turned from art therapy and creative outlets to bloodletting, prescribing chlorpromazine, I don't know if I said that correctly, or thorazine, which is used to treat psychotic disorders, but really all it does is put patients in a catatonic state. Um, laudanum, uh, which is an opiate and a painkiller. Uh, and shock therapy, which mostly put people into comas. The hospital became the home of the West Virginia Lobotomy Project in the 1950s, and they used it as a method to reduce the number of patients in the asylums due to severe overcrowding. Um, my suggestion probably would have been stop admitting people for these stupid reasons that aren't even related to mentally to mental illness um, or psychotic tendencies. That could be, you know, if somebody's lazy, just, you know, kick them in the butt. Uh, I don't know, motivate them um, without lobotomies or shock therapy. Um, so I'm sure that most everyone has heard the term lobotomy, uh, but if you don't know exactly what a lobotomy or a leucotomy is, um, it's a procedure where you use a pronged ice pick type instrument, we'll say, and you lodge it into the eye socket um, with some kind of, you know, something to hit it with force. And what it does is it severs the connection between the brain's prefrontal cortex, the anterior part of the frontal lobes. Now, the purpose was to reduce the symptoms of mental disorders, which usually it did, but this was often done at the expense of the patient's life basically. Um, it took away their personality. It took away their intellect. Uh, people were left emotionally stunted and they'd lose their spontaneity, um, their responsiveness, their self-awareness, their self-control, and just basically they would just completely lose themselves. Now, a lot of patients actually died during these procedures. Others ended up committing suicide in later years. Um, some were left severely brain damaged, and some of them did get to leave the hospital, and those who didn't just kind of became manageable within the hospital because they would just become just, I mean, nothing, honestly. But very few people were able to return to any kind of regular life. A lot of them couldn't work. Um, some did, but very, very small percentages. Now, by the 1980s, the population within the hospital had reduced uh, due to changes in the treatment of mental illness. Now, patients who couldn't be controlled were often locked in cages. And in 1985, a report that the hospital was dirty and unkempt, uh, patients were confined to dirty wards, and the bathrooms were covered with feces. 
1986, there was talks um, to open a new psychiatric facility uh, and convert the hospital into a prison, but that was suspended. And the hospital was shut down in 1994 due to a court order in part of a class action lawsuit filed by members of the patients. And this kind of like, I know that the funny thing is I've been uh, doing cases that kind of have taken place in the 1980s, but I just feel like, I mean, the 1980s, why is this still happening? Why are we still locking people in cages? I mean, it probably still happens today. Um, not saying it does because I haven't seen, you know, or heard of any proof of it, but whatever, neither here nor there. Um, but people are covered in feces. Um, they're not being taken care of. They're being kept unclothed and just dirty. Like, it's, it's, come on. Um, so the building and the grounds have been mostly vacant. And in 1999, all four floors were actually damaged by off-duty officers playing paintball. Um, which three of them were fired for that incident. Uh, the asylum now holds a museum that actually includes paintings, poems, and drawing by some of the patients who uh, have been there in years past. And there's also a room that shows a lot of the medical treatments that were used at some point in time. Uh, you can take a historical tour, and you can actually choose uh, between one of two paranormal tours. Um, one is about two to three hours, and the other is an overnight, and you can actually have an option to have that as a private tour. Um, so an inmate was actually murdered by two others. Um, they attempted to hang him, but that failed. So the men placed his head under a bed frame and jumped on it until the frame touched the floor. Now, other patients were murdered by their peers as well, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, staff were attacked. Uh, female nurses were sexually assaulted. Um, a nurse even went missing, and her corpse was found two months later at the bottom of an unused staircase. Now, of course, we don't know if she was murdered or if she fell, um, but that's a little disturbing that she wasn't found because they didn't use the staircase. Now, while some left the asylum on their own accord, many died there. And in most cases, families didn't return for the bodies um, to be buried. So patients who weren't claimed were assigned a number. And then they were buried in the cemetery with just a brick that was actually about this big, I believe, um, reflecting only their number for identification. And many gravestones were actually removed and repurposed. Um, and what I mean by gravestones is this little brick that had a number on it. Um, so there isn't really a way to find the bodies because let's say you had a brick put there at, you know, with the number five on it or whatever the number is. And then you put somebody else there and then all of a sudden they're reusing this brick and it's it just doesn't seem it just wasn't a good good system 
1992, a patient named George Edward Bodie died after a fight with another patient, and Brian Scott B. actually committed suicide, and his body wasn't found until eight days later. Now, in a building full of stories of torture, neglect, and desperation, it's no wonder that tales of ghosts running amok are heard quite frequently. So let's talk about some of those spirits. Now, of course, you have your typical lights moving through the empty building, orbs floating here and there, strange noises, reports of ghostly figures have started long before the hospital even ceased to be a hospital. The spirits are numerous, and they range from Civil War era to ex-patients, um, to staff, and even children. Now, one doctor claims a spirit followed her home and actually still troubles her to this day. On the first floor of the Civil Floor, the Civil Floor, on the first floor of the Civil War wing, is a former patient named Ruth. And I can only imagine why she despises men. Um, but she is said to wander the halls, throwing things at them. And people have actually been pushed against walls. Um, they've heard whistling. Uh, they've heard things being moved around, but can't find exactly where that noise of things moving is coming from. Uh, Slewfoot is another one who roams the halls, and he was apparently a vicious killer in life, and he's actually a pretty malicious spirit. On the second floor sits Ward 2, where a man was stabbed 17 times by another patient. Uh, two other patients committed suicide on this floor by hanging themselves from curtain rods. Uh, shadowy figures have been reported, and an EVP has actually captured someone saying, get out. It seems to be the typical, like, ghosts are just like, bruh, get out. This is my place. Stop coming in here. Stop bothering me. Which I could understand why. Like, this is my place. Get out. Um... Now, Dean, the patient who was murdered under the bed, continues to haunt the room he was murdered in. Uh, people have had different um, interactions with him, and there's uh, quite a few stories that um, where people say that they've heard him laughing, um, they've heard screaming, um, and they've actually heard, like, random moaning coming from this room. So, um, Big Jim, who murdered another patient with a bedpost, also maintains a present here, as well as a nurse named Elizabeth. Um, not much is really known about her. People have just kind of seen her figure uh, kind of appear and disappear, um, and they say that she's usually wearing a nurse's uniform, so maybe she was the nurse who went missing and was found at the bottom of the stairs. Um, not saying that's the case because I didn't find that in my actual research. It just kind of, kind of fits. Um, now a patient named James died of a heart attack in the bathtub and can still be seen and heard, um, around that bathtub. 
Um, now, Lily, a well-known spirit, has taken up residence on the fourth floor in Ward R. Now, this ward was once used for violent women. Um, however, she lives, or she mostly is seen in a toy room dedicated to her memory. And she's probably waiting for someone to play with her. Um, you see, Lily is only about nine years old. Uh, she wears a white dress. She likes to play games with staff and visitors. Uh, you can hear her laughing and sometimes crying. Uh, toys move on their own, and a music box will actually turn on by itself. Now, Lily is known to follow visitors, and she's actually one of many children uh, who have been encountered at the hospital, but the only one who has a name. Now, actually, the sad thing is um, children, the people used uh, this asylum to just kind of drop their kids off, like dump their children. Um, unwanted children usually were dumped here. Uh, kids with, you know, just the, the most basic of um, ticks or um, I don't even want to say, you know, mentally ill, like mental uh, symptoms because they were dropped off or like I said laziness you could be dropped off for it um, but Lily was actually born in the asylum her mother was a patient and she was pregnant when she was when she was admitted um, Lily died of pneumonia at the age of nine so life in the asylum was the only one she had actually ever known. So it's no wonder that she doesn't, um, that she still stays there, um, even in the afterlife. Um, no one knows her mother's name or, you know, I don't think it was really, I don't think records were really kept all that great um, at first, but they said that it begins with an E and there was a report from the 1920s of a patient with the first letter of E in her name who is marked to have a little girl. Um, I couldn't find in my research the full name, but it did say that it was an E. Um, so plus it was the 1920s. We're, I mean, not sure how intact or how readable that still is legible, readable. A staff member actually experienced 40 of the 906 doors slamming shut all at once when she was the only one in the building. And I know that like part of me is that's just <laughs> you're the only one in the building and 40 doors slam shut. Um, part of me is like that that would creep that would definitely creep me out and I'd run, but I probably wouldn't. I would probably just be like, okay guys, like can we just right, I get it. Can we all just coexist and maybe not slam doors? I don't mind if you show yourself, you know, to me. However, slamming 40 doors is a little much. <laughs> um, there's also a black mass-like apparition called the creeper that crawls on the floor. Um, banging on pipes is often heard, and a soldier named Jacob strolls the hallways. Um, if he's a soldier, he's probably thinking that he's still on duty and just keeping the hospital and area safe. Um, so he's just helping out, man. Uh, screams come from the electroshock therapy room. Mysterious slamming doors, as I stated, 40 of them. 
Um, moans and hysterical laughter also come from empty rooms. A security guard actually said that near the, near the kitchen, he felt like someone was watching him and he said that he felt dread, which is actually quite common when there's a negative energy around. Um, so he says that he then saw movement and a grayish figure that looked like a woman behind an open access into the kitchen, but she quickly faded away when she realized that he had noticed her. Now, while the asylum was built with good intentions and positive, optimistic outlooks, um, it was definitely overused and misused. And it's definitely a reminder that we need to do better when it comes to our mentally ill um, friends, family, um, members of the community. Um, and even to this day, we, I feel like we really need to take it more seriously and also with compassion and empathy. I feel like um, a lot of people lack that or they just don't have the time or, you know, they just they don't want it to be their problem. Now, if you'd like to visit the Trans Allegheny uh, Lunatic Asylum. It's located at 71 Asylum Drive in West Virginia. Um, they're open six days a week, closed on Mondays from 11.30 to 6. Now, the first floor tour is about 45 minutes, and that last tour starts at 5 o'clock and is $10 a person. Um, the fourth floor paranormal tour is about 90 minutes, and it starts at 4 o'clock and is $30 a person. And um, if anybody goes or if you've been, you know exactly what I'm going to say. I want to hear all about it. I want to know if you encountered any uh, spirits. I want to hear all the juicy details. So if you've been, go ahead and comment down below. Even if you haven't or you've heard like other stories about this asylum, go ahead and comment. <laughs> um, but also, as I ask, lead with kindness and um, respect and just, you know, be respectful to each other in the comments. Um, no arguing or, you know, shaming anybody, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, but you know, um, but on that note, I will see you next crime. Bye. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production. All episodes are researched, written, and edited by yours truly. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. You can find the podcast on your favorite listening platform or now you can find it on YouTube as well. Don't forget to follow along on social media, creepycases.spookyspaces, for all future news updates and maybe some content that you won't find on the podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get access to bonus content, early access to content, and a couple of little thank you swag. If you'd like to contact me about appearing on a future episode, maybe you would like to suggest your own creepy case or spooky space, or maybe you'd also like to reach out about ad space, you can reach me directly at 
creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com or feel free to reach out through those social media platforms as well. And as always, see you next crime.